Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Okay, there's something special with a propeller plane. As a kid, I always loved Indiana Jones. And I admit it, to me, Indy is still in many ways the essence of adventures. I've hummed the theme song countless times. And Indiana always flew in with a propeller plane. Always. Either that or a inflatable life raft down a mountainside. And here I am, in a propeller plane heading north. Adventure lies ahead in the sense that I don't really know what to expect. I'm about to meet up with Sigurdur Jonsson, captain of the sailboat Aurora Arctica a man that I first saw in the fantastic Iceland episode from the Skier's Journey video series by Jordan Manley. My name is Magnus Ormestad and this is the Swedish outdoor podcast Husky. town of Isafjordur, the Ice Fjord, a town of some 3,000 people in the northwest of Iceland, in the region called the Westfjords. Isafjordur lies nested deep in the fjord, with snow-covered mountains on both sides. The mountains are so close that it probably in theory would be possible to ski all the way from the top down to the city center. It's a beautiful town. The surroundings are unbelievable. The ocean, the mountains, but also the town itself where many of the wooden houses are more than 120 years old and painted in bright colors. When I arrive around lunchtime on Sunday, two things have happened. First of all, according to most of the Icelanders, spring has just arrived. Second, It has been snowing constantly for about a week. We throw my gear into Sigi's car and within one hour I'm putting the skins on my splitboard. And together with the local backcountry community, we get two nice runs in poor visibility, but in great powder snow. This is also my first introduction to the very active, social and warm backcountry community of Isafjörder. Later that evening, I joined them for movie night at the local cafe Bredraborg that serves as kind of a headquarter and hangout for the visitors and locals seeking inspiration, company or just great food. I start talking to Caitlin, Ali and Cam, three Americans with a kick-ass camper van parked outside. 
what kind of uh, what kind of group is this? Uh, we're three skiers, photographers, writers, storytellers on a adventure through Iceland, uh, skiing and camping. Um, how come you ended up at the Westfjords? Um, I think I had seen some content coming out of this area um, from other people, but not much. And I think Iceland's been doing a really great job of promoting itself um, and its tourism. And this just seemed like one of the areas in Iceland that was least visited um, just because of where it is geographically. Um, and it did have some promising ski terrain. So um, those two things coupled together just made for a uh, good opportunity for us as skiers and people who were looking to create some content. But none of you had ever been here before? No. Nope. What was uh, like the first impressions coming here, coming to Iceland and coming up here, up north? Um, well, initially I... Um kind of have always felt like Iceland is kind of a last frontier in some ways. Um, the weather and winter um, is definitely still strong here. Um, and so initially getting here, I was I was kind of astounded with the rawness that we felt um, and the way that um, obviously we know that this country doesn't have a huge population, um, but it also has kind of some really raw and true people that are, um, uh, I think, really hardy and able to deal with adversity and then turn it into this positive thing. And so initially, actually, we got this mentality kind of overwhelming, a lot of people telling us, oh, this is easy, Iceland is easy, everything is so easy. And we actually found it to be um, pretty... Well, I don't even know how to put this in there because we have been enjoying it, but it's been... In some ways, it can be difficult. Um, building character. It, yeah, building character. Yeah, <laughs> and so getting even getting to Isafjordur um, has been an adventure, and it's exactly what we signed up for. And uh, so, what's your what's your setup here? You got a you got a massive trailer parked outside, <laughs> a camper, camper Iceland. Yeah, we've got the Dodge. Ram 1500. Of course, the favorite. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, with a, with a small camper on the bed of the truck. Um, so it came equipped with heat and two-burner stove and enough space for three people to sleep fairly comfortably. Um, I don't think it was quite a, ready to absorb all the massive amounts of gear we brought. So it's a little of a, a bit of a... Um, a logistical feat every day of like taking our gear out and drying it out and you know prepping it for for living in um, especially with the weather we've been having so considering it's summer as well at least that's what <laughs> yeah. the Icelandics keep telling us <laughs> the powder summer yeah um what's um what could you say about the like the the terrain how accessible has it been how what kind of terrain have you been riding 
Well, this weather has made it kind of difficult for us to really see the tops of some of these uh, zones where we'd like to go skiing. But the little bit that we have seen is extremely accessible right from the road um, and big. We're seeing lines that we'd like to ski and realizing that they top out at a pretty high elevation and something that looks aesthetically pleasing as well as challenging. Uh, then there's stuff inside these valleys that you can tour for a couple hours and then get to some zones that look like skiing I would really want to do. So once this weather breaks, I can't wait to tackle some of these objectives and, and ski some zones that just look like fun, really fun. Is your, uh, like your, your, your knowledge and your experience, is that enough? Or do you also work with like, is it just maps and your experience that's enough or do you feel like you need uh, like written guides or uh, groups or anything? Yeah, I think at this point the skiing hasn't really been touched enough and so skiing lines right from the road, some are first ascents and that's pretty incredible so you don't need a map however there are some areas that offer some great skiing that are even further into these valleys off the road that I think with a guide and with the assistance you could really get into some zones that you can't do on your own without. So what's the uh, expectations and hopes for the next coming days? Uh, I've had the mentality of have no expectations but expect great things so um, we're hoping that the weather breaks and we just get to really see the potential of the area and get on our skis because as of now we've been staring at them and uh, spending some time in the cafes but um, yeah to, to have some weather that at least allows us to get up and ski some couloirs I mean as Caitlin was just saying that the skiing just looks incredibly aesthetic and something that we're all very excited to do and ski right down to our truck and right leave right from the road so it'll be and fill it up with stinking stinking clothes stinking clothes hopefully well i mean i think we've already achieved that but um <laughs> and we've only been sitting around <laughs> just wait till we yeah. start skiing uh-oh yeah. <laughs> it takes another day before i finally get aboard the aurora arctica aboard captain siggy explains a bit about life on board ah uh, okay so, I'm just going to do a quick safety housekeeping briefing. Um, first of all, close to your, close to all of your pockets are these kind of uh, life jackets in red pockets on the wall. So, uh, if we are just motoring around quietly, you don't need to be wearing them. But if we are sailing, and uh, we should be uh, wearing a life jacket. If I'm wearing a life jacket, it's a good hint that you should be wearing one as well. Uh, they so they are all like this. You just uh, clip this one in here. Get this one under here, and there's uh, these lifelines are also in the pockets. You may not need them, but let's say if we are, if you want to be climbing onto the front when the boat is jumping around, you should be keeping your lifelines, and then you can clip onto things 
for instance, there's a white webbing that runs all the way up and back that you can clip onto so you can walk up and down the boat without unclipping. Or if you're sitting in the cockpit, you can clip onto some of the D-rings that are sitting in the cockpit. So it's a good thing to have. So these life jackets are automatic. So if you do fall in, they should pop up within a few seconds. If they don't, there's a toggle. But I put them kind of under the Velcro here. May not be the official way to do it, but you just tear open the Velcro and pull these toggles. I just want to keep them under here, otherwise they get accidentally pulled all the time. But this will usually pop up within a few seconds. If not, none of this works, there's also a, a tube that you can blow into and uh, blow it up. But most importantly, do not fall overboard. That's the number one. It's cold and wet, uncomfortable and unpopular. The days on the boat are just perfect, like just what I came for. The essence of the good and simple life. Breakfast, hop into the Zodiacs for a day of ski touring, and at least one long run in the untracked snow down to the waiting boat and a delicious dinner. With the boat, we access the Hunstrandir Nature Reserve. In Hunstrandir, I finally get to see the Arctic fox for the first time. Kind of a big thing for me since it's almost extinct in Scandinavia. At the end of the week, I sit down with the Siggy. The fjord lies still like a mirror around us. No wind, no clouds, just the birds and in the end, even a barking fox. What can you, uh, what can you say about this boat that we're sitting on? And, and if you allow yourself to be very uh, sailing boat, sailboat nerdy, what can you say about it? I don't know, for a sailboat nerd, I would say it's, a, it's an old fashioned British kind of a boat. She was designed for a round the world race for amateurs. So she was designed to be very conservative. She's got a, yeah, she's got a very old fashioned feel about it. But also, uh, but uh, so Robin Knox Johnston, the guy I, I bought the boat from, he said that she was designed agriculturally, you know, strong for amateurs to, uh, to crash jibe in the Southern Ocean without damaging anything. So she's simple and strong. And I'm not that it's uh, sailboat nerdy, but I, I like to say that she's more like a Land Rover. She's not a Porsche, you know, she's more like a Land Rover. It's a working boat, more than a yacht. Uh, when, you, when, you, when you did find it, did you find the, the, boat, the boat that you were looking for, or was it just convenient? Well, I wasn't, even, I wasn't actually even looking for a boat. It was a, kind of a coincidence how everything happened. So I had basically had this in mind for probably 20, 30 years. And I had been doing similar trips on my own little boat for just my own, with my, my friends. We'd been going skiing and climbing and stuff from a boat. And I had moved back from Canada, uh, but back from Isafer and was working freelance 
for Canadian companies in shipbuilding projects. And then I met Robin Ostjonston, who was in Isafield with uh, Chris Bonington on this boat. And we were sitting down below and having some chicken curry and beer and and I suggested to Robin that he would leave the boat in Isafjörður because he had a crew to take her back to England. And uh, he said, well, yeah, okay, that's a good idea, you know, because he, he had to go back, he couldn't get to Greenland, he had to go, come back later somehow and finish it. But then he said, why don't you just buy her? She's for sale. <laughs> you can, uh, you know, take her and do it yourself. So that, of course, nothing happened then, but that triggered that idea and I basically they left sailed back to England but that uh, gave me the idea to really go and look into it and I had some friends uh, with me and so we basically started to uh, make up some kind of business plan to see if we would actually go bankrupt on this or not and uh, so that's uh, eventually we decided to make an offer on this boat and buy her so it was uh, <coughs> It was more the boat came to me than uh, than me <laughs> finding the boat, you know. And that was back in 2000. And That's in 2005, in the spring, in the summer of 2005. And the next winter, we uh, kind of got it together and uh, picked her up in Portsmouth in uh, April 2000, and you, uh, 2006. And you you got to name the boat. Yeah, she was because she was used for the races. She she never really had the had the same name all the time. She had like sponsor names. And uh, yeah, Aurora is a is a good name. It's a it's a it's a woman's name in many languages, and it's a it's many famous boats that have had that name. And it's the rosy fingered goddess of dawn. So it's a beautiful name, I think. Fits to what we're doing. And uh, she's been around the world, what, four or five times. Yeah, so she was around the world in the race four times before I got her. So, yeah. Was, but in the warm places, mostly. <laughs> um, but about warm places, you're you are not from a warm place. Some, no. Sometimes it's warm, I guess, a bit. Yeah, and I'm, I'm from. So I'm basically born and and raised here and lived most of my life here. Oh, and here is Isafjord. Yeah, in the west fjords of Iceland, in Isafjord. So yeah, I would probably. You're right. That's probably not a a warm place. Do you go? Uh, do you go long back in the West Fjords, your family? Yeah, actually, my family goes uh, many generations in in the town of Isabel. Actually, it's maybe a bit unusual. But... What kind of uh, what kind of town is it? Well, it's primarily a fishing town, and. Uh, it's still very much a fishing town. It's still like Isafjord is a, it's also a service center for the area. But it's uh, first and foremost the West Fjords are based on fishery, and and I I was uh, working in shipyards or in shipbuilding and this kind of projects. You know when I was younger, and that's what I did uh, also after college. <coughs> but what was it like? Growing up in in a place like Isafjord, I thought it was always fantastic. And uh, somebody, I thought I lived in the center of the universe, really. 
And I still, you know, I was 20 years old when somebody pointed out that there was a small fishing village. I, <laughs> I, did, I had no idea. I thought it was, you know, I was always talking about, you know, it was like us and then there was maybe somebody in Reykjavik, but mostly like New York, London, Paris, you know. <laughs> we were, you know, we who lived in these cities, you know, these metropolis uh, so I always thought I lived in the, one of the major cities of the world. And in a way, I kind of still think so. <laughs> you can put, the, I mean, you could put the center of the universe wherever you put your finger, you know? Yeah. So if you, and Isafjörður has always been a, a kind of a cultural hub. And it's been bigger than it is, really. Not, not only, you know, in people's mind, you know, people have always imagined it a little bit bigger than it is. It's been a very rich culture of music. It's been a skiing town, of course, but in basically still a fishing town. Uh, because we... Uh, now I, I, I'm glad to say I have first-hand experience of it, but it's actually a town where you can ski, like, right almost from the middle of the middle of the city. You can, you can go skiing, more or less. So is yeah. that, has that always been, like, a, a, a big part of it, growing up there? Yes, I think so. I mean, it's uh, not necessarily skiing, but, you know, for me, it's it's always been something about the combination of the water and the mountains. So always, I've always been around boats in some way. You know, my father had small boats. I used to go kayaking, and then we had sailboats, and I used to work in a shipyard. So I was always around the sea and the boats. And then also there's a rich kind of a skiing culture in my family. I was never really a very good skier, but I was always skiing and I was very much in, in the mountains, you know, a lot of camping and climbing and stuff. So everything was very accessible. You know, within, you know, 10 minutes you could be in ice climbing above the town or another 10 minutes the other way you would be out kayaking. So I think, yeah, it was a very important part of... Uh, my life and it's it's never was like when it comes to like identity for instance like like choosing between the waters the oceans or the or the mountains and stuff it was it was always like a combination of both uh, yeah for me and many of my friends it was never really any conflict you know of course there's a lot of people that are you know come from the skiing background and they never had anything to do with the sea but uh i think for me and many of my friends and family, we were always linking these two things together. And, and also, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I guess this could be a very uh, uh, difficult question, but um, like where, is there any place that you feel more at home? And also like if you're, say you are, you are sailing in a coastal area, but far away from the mountains, and vice versa. If you're in the mountains, but you, you you kind of lack the the the, the closeness of, of water and oceans, is that something that you uh, you consider? You think about? Yeah, I, actually. So I I, for instance, I moved to Denmark. I went to to college in Denmark. I studied uh, like naval architecture in Denmark. So I lived there for uh, four years and. Uh, I definitely missed the mountains, and I felt like like fish out of the water in a way. You know, I, I've never felt really at home there, and and there was a lot of things missing. It was nice and cute, you know. Denmark is organized and cute, but it's not very exciting. And uh, yeah, I, I needed 
I needed that connection to you know to the mountains and the sea. What is what is the the excitement? What is excitement for you? What did you miss? Um, I I kind of missed a little bit the same things from the from the nature as from the people. It's a bit on you know unstructured, unorganized, impulsive uh, environment, and I think Icelanders are still struggling to get into the kind of the modern uh, society because we are used to uh, and even more when you get out into the rural parts of Iceland like Isafjörður you are you're very much i guess we could say maybe in tune with the uh, with the nature is that the n- nature rules and uh, that means that nature always has the last word it doesn't matter if you're flying to Reykjavik if you're driving to Reykjavik if you're organizing a wedding party or whatever if you're organizing anything you can do all your best in any organizing but it's always the nature that's going to have the final word and uh, and it, i think it does create if people if people get used to it and get comfortable with it i think they develop a kind of a stoic attitude towards uh, their environment and life and and it's uh, so the weather is bad okay that's not i mean there's nothing we can do about it we'll just deal with it and 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 you know adapt to it and that attitude also goes into you know other things in life is that you know you you uh, you develop some kind of a stoic attitude towards you know these things and uh, you kind of relaxed about it but then on the other hand you have to be a bit impulsive okay the sun is shining we have to do something you know we have to take in the hay or we have to go fishing because the good weather is good so we have to seize the opportunity and and that is uh, so it it goes all away from nature but it also goes down into what people uh, and and one one of the th- one i think that's one of the things that have been uh, a bit of a problem for icelanders in the modern you know economies like running banks and stuff people thought they could you know <laughs> they went straight from being fishermen to running banks and they thought they could run the banks in the same way you know just be very good you know good at the work and work 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 and but not really look at the long term slow strategies and organizations and of course it didn't work didn't work so well <laughs> <laughs> so that's part of the explanation for the like 2008 2009 crash could be that uh uh the the influence of nature or something yeah i think so. i think it has i think that little uh, impulsiveness in people definitely had an impact is that you if you are a fisherman when the fishing was good and the weather was good you really have to work hard and make tons of money because maybe next year it would all collapse and then you just you you had to be then you had to survive so the whole economy in iceland has been a roller coaster up and down with the fishery for the longest time of course now it's much more stable we have tourism we have all kinds of other industries that are very stable but, but back, people back came into was, this banking you know i think money people, was good so they like did everything they could to yeah you you, you were you know <laughs> you were working hard and and spending the money when you had it because maybe tomorrow you didn't have it um but has that Have have you experienced this clash for yourself? Like you already said, you, you've been living in Denmark, and you've been living in the U.S. Uh, have you experienced this 
clash firsthand? Like, did you find it a bit more difficult to adapt to these? Yeah, I, I find it very difficult, and I basically now I'm I'm older and more mature, and I just basically say, okay, I'm not gonna adapt. I'm just gonna live where I can do it my way. I'm not gonna try. I, I can't live in Denmark. There's no way because I can't adapt to this kind of environment. I can't live in these you know, structured, steady European countries that are so organized and, and, and settled. I just can't deal with that kind of environment. So I'm just going to live where I can, you know, do do what I want to do. And How, how come you ended up in Newfoundland? Well, there was a kind of a coincidence. I started to go... Uh, so I was working in a shipyard in Isafjord for many years, and then I worked for a company making fish processing machinery and I started in probably 97 98 I started to go to Canada to uh, set up uh, fish factories shrimp factories mostly and all kinds of projects and then eventually we decided to set up a daughter company for an Icelandic company a little stainless steel machine shop in St. John's in Newfoundland so I moved I basically took that project on and moved there for a year to set up the shop. And after I set it up and I've hi- I hired some local guys to run it, uh, one of my biggest clients offered me a job to uh, restructure a fleet of fishing trawlers. So I moved over to that company, a big Canadian. It was at, at that time the biggest uh, fishing company in Canada, a huge company. Did you feel at the time that you were taking a risk... Like leaving Iceland behind for a moment, putting it on pause, and then no, no, take no, something no. on. Never really. I mean, I've always. I mean, I mean, I I kind of looked at it as a temporary project, it uh, what which it was in a way. I was always hired on a temporary basis, and kind of a project basis. So I I in a way I never looked at it that I had actually moved. I thought, okay, I'm just gonna go away for a while, but I'm on my way back, you know. Uh, what did you find in uh, in Newfoundland, except for 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 except work-wise, like with the uh, with the society and the nature and everything? Well, nature is in some ways similar to here. The people are fantastic, really nice culture. You know, the people are really nice. They have their own political issues, and they have a lot of interesting dilemmas with their connection with Canada. You know, they they are still kind of a little like a little British colony and. And maybe a little independent country that has kind of been sucked into Canada, so they are struggling quite a lot in finding their place within Canada. But uh, absolutely fantastic people, and uh, I, I enjoyed every day that I was there. And I, I kind of, I miss it a little bit, you know. I miss the people, and I miss the connection with Newfoundland. But uh, yeah, it was it was a great experience. I had my family there. My kids went to school, and it was just fantastic. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. But is that um, a kind of a rebellious attitude that you are, uh, that, that you find yourself attracted to, interested in? No, not at all. I don't 
look at it at all that I'm rebellious. <laughs> I think I'm quite, uh, but I've, but I've more and more tried to do my way, do things my way, you know, and do what I like. And I've also encouraged my kids to basically follow their hearts and do exactly what they like to do, and and the in the way that they like, of course. But if you want to do that, you you have to be responsible. So if you want to be free, you have to be responsible and free. You can't just be, you know, rebellious in a way. It's not. So I don't really look at this any. I I think I'm a, a fairly uh, quiet citizen of, of my uh, community. But but I, I really like to do things my own way. And but I'm willing to take that responsibility and to do it in a in a proper way that it doesn't harm other people and. And, uh, so yeah. So it kind of came came uh, natural for you in a way to to start your own business, like to be your to be your own boss. Yeah, in a way, I've always. So I'm, so I'm uh, a naval architect, but uh, I've. But you have for, been work, for, you for have some, been working as that. You have been working. Yeah, I, I've been working that, but but for some reason, I always got kind of sucked into some kind of a management functions every now and then. I I hated it. <laughs> I didn't like the money. I don't like the business part of it. I really don't like the business part of it. But repeatedly, I got I kind of got sucked into business part of it. I the ship a shipyard went bankrupt in Isa further, and I ended up being a director of a new shipyard and managing it for a few years. In Newfoundland, I came on as an engineer, but I ended up being a director of fleet operation with like a $60 million dollar, uh, trawler operation and like a few hundred people working for me. So I got sucked into kind of a management, like a business management things, but I never, I was never interested in the the business part of it except as a project. I I tried to I tried to do it properly. Like to establish a vision and then kind of reach it? Yeah, I I I I I looked at it. Okay, I have to do my, I have to do a good job. But I'm not in it because I'm interested in making money and stuff. You know, I'm just interested in fulfilling my work and doing it properly. Is that something that you can connect to, uh, like your your outdoor activities, like going on, uh, going on not expeditions, but like going on, uh, um, like tours and, and and climbing and stuff. In some ways, yeah, maybe because I think it's it's all about you are, I you know, same in my business now. Now I'm totally independent in, in a way that I'm operate. I own Aurora and I operate her, and and it's um, it's very important. I think is to link the responsibilities with the authorities in a way. So you have I have full power over what I'm doing. I have full. Uh, I can do whatever I want. But it comes with responsibility, and the same thing is if you're climbing a, a, a difficult route, you're sailing across an ocean. You're free and independent, but you're never free and independent if you're not responsible at the same time. So it has to come together, I think. Um, what's your relation on? What's your relation to uh, taking risks, being in danger, being scared? Yeah, I, I don't think I'm taking. A, I'm not really. I have never. I think I'm. I, I thought about it quite a lot, and I've asked. I'm asked about it quite a lot, but I have never seeked danger. I've done a lot of different things. You know, I've done a lot of climbing, a lot of sailing in, in bad weather, and uh, 
in difficult conditions. But I'm, it's never been for the sake of seeking the risk. I always thought that I was... Uh, I'm, I think I'm uh, pretty careful. <laughs> and uh, I think you can do a lot of very potentially dangerous things just by doing very... You know, you have to be just not careful and... So I'm not seeking the the thrill of danger, but I'm but I'm I'm still drawn to the just the thrill of the unknown, in a way more so than the actual danger. So just going across to Greenland when it's full of ice, or especially going across back home in the fall when it's really stormy, I'm not so. I I don't think I'm afraid, but I'm very excited. You know, I feel that I'm excited. You know, and it's. Uh, you know, you're always double-checking everything, and so it's—I uh, don't know where. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm afraid, but <laughs> I feel like I'm—it's because I'm really, you know, excited about it. Do you, do your guests feel the same bouncing around in the boat, being seasick? Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think I've been with a lot of people that have felt that we were doing something dangerous, <laughs> but I don't—I've never had anybody actually totally panic <laughs> with me. I think. Probably people have some confidence in what I'm doing. I don't know. Uh, what's your What's your vision with uh, with your business, with what you're doing? Well, what that's do you a... offer? Like, <laughs> yeah. To to begin with, what what is your business idea? Yeah. Well, my business idea is pretty much to to give people possibilities to come out and play outside with me, you know, and my friends. So it's it's not necessarily about skiing, it's not about sailing, it's not about kayaking, it's not about these things, but it's about being outside in a kind of an autonomous way. You know, you're on a boat, you can you have you have the freedom to go different places that you can't access the other way, any other way. And you are yeah, basically I like to offer people that opportunity to come out and play with me. And uh that's that's really the core, I think. Uh if you if you look at the customers that you have, what do you hear from them? What 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 is it uh, with this operation that 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 customers appreciate the most? Do you think? I think that I think most people appreciate like a personal that personal attention and and connection, and to be you know to be shown some interesting things. It's not like I said before. It's it's not they're not. They're not going to go back and say this was the best skiing in my life, but they're going to say, okay, this was fantastic skiing, but it was also the food was great, or the conversation around the table was really interesting, or, or we heard some you know nice stuff, you know we saw some foxes, or the birds were great, or, and the, that whole package all has to come together, in my opinion. Um, I also asked you the other day, if, as a sailor, are you, don't you? Because in, in what I thought that if you if you are a sailor and if you own a boat you want to sail around the world, but you said no, and you said you'd rather just no I forgot exactly what you said, but you you'd rather just uh, experience the. Uh... Yeah, I'm now. So now I'm. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's the it's because I'm older and uh, whatever. But I am more and more interested in going let's say, deeper rather than wider. 
So I'm not interested in, sail, in, in sailing around the world, but I'm really interested in exploring more and more about areas that are relatively close to me. You know, my, I, I, when, when I started this operation, I, I remember one, once I, I kind of put like a, a ruler in the middle of uh, Easterfjord and said, OK, I'm going to play in about like a four or five hundred mile radius around home. You know, I'm not going to, that's going to be my home grounds. And that includes most of Greenland, specifically East Greenland. It, it's Jan Mayen, it's the Faroe Islands, Scotland, you know, it could even be down to the Azores, but that's kind of my home radius. And I'm more and more, you know, even the fjords that we are in skiing here, I never grow tired of it, you know, and every trip is a little different. There's no trips exactly the same. You always see something new, something a little bit different. And like East Greenland is just an absolutely fantastic wilderness area. What is it with what is it with Greenland? I've never been there, but everyone who who has been there or has been working there. Yeah, the I think thing. yeah, it's a. I think for Greenland, it's a, it's the whole for me. It's the whole combination of the the this wild nature, which has that combination of uh, very little vegetation, big mountains, a lot of ice. And really wild area with maybe not so much wildlife, but some interesting uh, encounters with bears and seals and whales and stuff. But but for me, just as important is the history of the the culture of the people. You know, the Inuit or the Greenlanders' uh, culture and the way they've lived there for uh, you know thousands of years. And it's very very interesting, I think. And that combination of 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 uh, exploring the land with the thought about the people who have been there before you know i think that's absolutely fantastic and and it, another interesting thing is that it's so close to us like isafjord is the closest port to east greenland so yeah, said, on a, it's like today, 30 hours yeah. like it's about 30 hours away and if we go out today in about 10 hours we're going to be stuck in the ice but it's uh but it's so different there's nothing like iceland it's just everything is totally totally different And um, go like just looking around us. Uh, at the, it's 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 uh, uh, it's almost difficult to to explain. We're sitting in the in the front of the uh, Aurora Arctica and, and doing this interview, and it's uh, like uh, it's not a not a cloud in the skies, and it's a setting late setting evening sun, and there's birds flying around us, and it's uh, it's just you know it's it's almost too good to be true, but. What can you say about the Westfjords, about your home, your home home area, your backyard? Yeah, the Westfjords are. I mean, for the longest, I mean, people have lived here for a thousand years, and but it's always been a, kind of the extreme outer edge of Iceland in a way, you know. And people have been in very living here in really really remote little cottages and uh, in like subsistence farming and. And it's only in the last 60, 70 years that people really started to collect into villages. And it was a booming uh, time. Like in the 70s, it was pretty, you know, it was a good boom in the fishery and uh, the villages was building up. But then with the reduction in the fishery and the changing politics around the fishery, a lot of these villages have lost a lot of their fishing quotas. So... uh, So now, I mean, the population of the whole West Fjords is only like six or seven thousand. Maybe 100 years ago, there would have been maybe thirteen, fourteen thousand. 
So it's been uh, the West Fjords have been struggling in many ways, you know, by depopulation. Isafjord has been relatively stable point because it's been really the only big town, and uh, so and it has been a, a relatively stable town in the in the whole turmoil. But it's still uh, a, 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 an area that has been struggling uh, by people moving away and not having not finding jobs and stuff. But on the on the other hand, it's a wild nature, and it's that fjordscape with the uh, sea and the mountains all clo- always close together. There's pr- practically no flat land anywhere. It's, you're always pretty much straight from the mountains to the sea. And it's not even like the the area area where we are now. It's it's only accessible by by boat or by foot. Yeah, so so Hornstrandir, this nature reserve that we are in now, is uh, the last people moved away from that whole peninsula in the 1940s and maybe the 1950s. We actually see some some houses. Yeah, this is Hestere there, and uh, the last people moved away in the 1950s, and in the end there was a few families left, and they just had a like a town meeting, where they all decided together to move away, to close the village. But uh, like 30 years earlier than that, or 40 years, there was a whaling station just around the corner there, uh, which uh, you know gave a lot of uh, employment to the local pe- people. But this, they at that time they probably realized that this would never be linked to the mainland with any good road connections. It didn't have the proper harbor facilities, and it didn't really have a nature, you know, the natural. Uh, landscape to facilitate good harbors so it was pretty obvious that this would probably never never survive that as a like a future community so people ended up moving away and now it's just nature that uh, rules here but i mean still and I, i just learned this weekend talking to your son actually that uh, there's villages that on the map are like close to each other but still like during the almost like seven or nine months a year they cannot almost get to each other because the roads are closed over the mountains. Yeah, yeah. So it's still a highly uh, separated and remote landscape. It's it is, yeah, yeah. Um, what of the, the the changing of the seasons in this area? What is it? What happens and what does it mean? Well, I mean, here is a. I mean, the winter is is really rough, especially here in Hornstrand. It can be even worse than over in Isafjord. So it's just in the winter, nothing is happening here. It's dark, you know. the The middle of the winter is is pretty dark and stormy. So, uh, but then just springs, like spring, will just kind of jump out, you know. In a like four weeks from now, grass will just come almost green from underneath the snow, and uh, flower wildflowers and the birds are going to be everywhere. And it's it's amazing energy in the in the nature that short summer. And then you know it could start snowing again in September. <laughs> so it's really two or three months of you know really powerful summer. Uh, and we've uh, we've done some we've had some fantastic days uh, on the boat this week. What can you like summarize like what what we have been doing here? Well, this week started off with a bit of a stormy weather, and uh, we are quite used to stormy periods coming any time of the year almost. But this has been a very long, cold period now. This has been like two weeks of proper winter weather. And now it's like, uh, it's still minus degrees and it's fresh snow and it's... But 
but it's uh, it, it also offers some opportunities. You know, we've been doing it's some so, great great so skiing. So you know, we we've been doing a little bit of powder, and so it's been great, good skiing. And what do you? What do you expect for tomorrow, the, the the last working day of the week? Yeah, it looks like a great day. I think it looks it's going to be similar to what it was today. And actually, the next you know foreseeable forecast is uh, seems to be relatively calm, not necessarily so sunny, but uh, pretty good, uh, easy weather. Do you have a do you have a clear vision like? Where you want to take this company, like in the in the coming years? Yes, I think no. Well, I don't know if I could say that I have a clear vision, but uh, I have a. I want to continue roughly in the same path that I've already been laid. You know, I think I'm. I would be very interested in doing more of the. You know, spending maybe more time in Greenland, doing a little bit more of the exploration. You know, going to some new places, but it's. Uh, but it's it's going to be it's not going to it's not it's not like a big business that has a very strategic plan you know it's it's mostly about you know me and my family and my friends and one day we may decide to take a u turn and do something totally different but at the moment i think it's all about operating a boat or two boats or whatever we're going to end up with and exploring this area kind of the north atlantic uh, our home grounds and inviting some people out to play with us. Sounds like a plan. Thank you so much. And the fox is barking. And the fox is barking behind us. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. We come back to Isafjörður just in time for the Fossavatn Ski Marathon a cross-country race ranging from 10 up to 50 kilometers. end up talking a bit to one of the older participants and a visitor from afar. No problem. So who are you and where are you from? My name is Peter Hoffman. I live near Toronto in Canada, a place near Waterloo, a famous, famous university there. Uh, how come you, you uh, ended up here in the, in the West George? Well, uh, I always wanted to visit Iceland because I enjoy... Um, maps and I like the north, Vikings, all those things, Inuit, but it was very expensive until about 2007 and then in Dublin, I have a big story here, we were uh, caught by the volcano actually in, in Dublin in 2010. Oh really? So I looked again and I said, oh it's not so expensive anymore and so this is actually number five time, it'll be number six on the way back, we're, we're going to Westman since 2011 that my wife and I my wife doesn't ski anymore but and I, I've done a lot of world office although I'm getting very old now so I actually I'm only doing 25 kilometers anyway next question <laughs> so, so what's your impression of, of, of the area coming here well East Fjord particularly is very beautiful in fact the whole the whole island and fortunately my wife loves it too she doesn't like the cold quite so much as I do but 
So we've been around the ring road. We're going to do it again this time, and we've been many places, but there's still some like Westman Islands, and we never went to um, the big waterfall near Mivatten. We'll probably go there this time if the road is okay. So it's just fantastic. They have the phrase, a little bit impolite, that Iceland is the a geologist's wet dream. And uh, I, that's true, I'm sure. I'm not a geologist, although my father was a mining engineer, so I'm quite interested in that. But what is it with the, with, what is it with the nature and everything that, that attracts you with, with this place? Well, just about everything. I, I suppose the mountains. We always visit mountains in many places, New Zealand and Switzerland and so on. Um, and, and actually, for a mountain country, the driving is... Much of the driving is quite easy. Some is a little... Uh, interesting, like near La Trobiarg last year, and we actually lived uh, near um, um, Snæfell Jökull for in a cottage for eight weeks last year. So not just six times, but many many weeks in Iceland actually. And, and what about uh, this cross-country skiing? What what, what what do you like about it? Well, I started only really, uh, I mean, a little bit as a teenager, but hardly any when I was in my 30s, and I just, I like the people, especially at events like this, at races. So I, when I was younger, I, I did more races, but I, I'm still doing it quite a bit with the Masters skiers in Canada. I just like the people very much. Everybody's so, uh, you know, we compete on the course, but, but people help each other, and uh, that's, and I like the winter. I, I think that it's probably close to the best exercise there is. So there's many things, and, and having a few races means you try to stay in shape. I roller ski in the summer, uh, so that's basically... But I only started racing when I was almost 50, really racing, not just going in events. And I think I'm pretty much finished trying to race and just enjoy the events now. Have you been to Vasa Loppet in Sweden? Well, in 1988, I did the Oppet Spar. I didn't do the Vasa Loppet itself. Uh, it, it was back in the 80s when I did many of these world lockets in Europe. Um, and I haven't, except for Norway, where we have friends who are almost like family. They're not actually family. Near Oslo, Oscar, go there often. So I've done the Norwegian Bergerbeiner maybe four times and caught by the no race with a wind a couple of years ago. Not last year, but the previous time. Um, but I haven't... I haven't, I've, lived, I've been through Sweden once or twice, but I've only done Vaslov at once. You get a favorite race? Well, of course I do the Canadian, Canadian no, probably 20 times I've done the 50k there. But it's not necessarily my favorite. It's sort of different because I live there. I think maybe Norwegian Bergebiner, even though I am very bad at climbing and classic, I'm better skating and in better flatter courses, but it's a challenge. I'm, I, I was never good enough to get the pin there, but, you know... I, I, I like it. I like so what do you feel for, for today, the race today? I'm sorry, what? Uh, what's your feelings for the race today with the weather? Well, I'll take it easy at first. I've had a little bit of trouble with, with uh, my abductor in my back or something. I want to make sure that's not bad. But this looks fine, you know, as long as it doesn't get windy. I think, I think wind is probably a big problem here because of no, no trees. Uh, and it looks like it'll be good. Just before I fly back to Reykjavik, I get to participate in something that serves as the perfect example of how alive and active the backcountry community is in such a small town as Isafjordur. 
a local initiative to introduce and educate the teenagers of the town to backcountry skiing. Even though this particular session was meant to be girls only, they were kind enough to make an exception for the podcasting Swedish dude. What's your name? Camilla. Um, why did you end up at Isafjord? I came here three springs ago skiing. I had some friends over this way and I did a little bit of reading and I found out you're right by the ocean. There's a mountain there, so it sounded like my kind of place. So I... I came and I stayed around for a bit and then I left for about six months and then I, I came back and decided that I wanted to make this my home base. Uh, what's your, like, briefly, like, what's your history? Because you've been around some skiing. Yeah, I grew up in England, but then I moved to Switzerland at 15, so I was in the mountains then. And then I... Um, yeah, I just kind of enjoyed the winters and skiing. So in the summer, I'd be like, well, what am I doing? And then I ended up going to Argentina so I could kind of fuel the, the skiing in the winter. The never-ending winter. The never-ending winter, yeah. Uh, and then it was a lot of ski touring too rather than just, you know, skiing resorts. I just like the cultures and the travel through skiing. Yeah, doing ski touring with horses in South, South America, I've heard. Yeah. Just out there, like, I mean... We're lucky and unlucky here that there's no trees, so you can just drive and park and, you know, you climb up anything. Whereas down there, there's a lot of forest and a lot of, like, longer approaches. So we'd go out for a few weeks with horses and camp. And also, like, you can only carry so much food and tents. So, yeah, that's why we use the horses out that way. Um, what, what was the uh, purpose of today's little exercise? Um... Well, I spent a lot of time in the Alps, so I'm used to seeing all the young people out skiing. And when I first came here, I realized that there's no one else out skiing, which was was great. I mean, you've got the whole mountain to yourself, but I think it's important that the young kids realize like what they've got on their doorstep. And they're motivated. They're all cross-country skiers, so they're trained six times a week. You know, they've got the fitness, but they just don't have anyone to take them out. So I think it's... Um, it's fun to see who's interested, and yeah, it seems to be that there's people wanting to do it. So, but this was the uh, the first the first event. Um, we took some girls out the other day, and they were the ones from the downhill like ski ski mm. team. So, mm. the girls today were from the cross country team. Mm. So, but what's the uh, like the long term ambition for this? Uh just uh, keep do- trying to do it as much as possible, and hopefully these girls will then inspire the younger girls, and just like a a chain effect. Uh, I want to see young people doing stuff. Like, it gets a bit depressing when you're the only person out and just trying to motivate yourself. Like, I mean, the weather can be terrible here. So, you know, there's only so much skiing in the rain you can do alone. Whereas if you've got people with you, then it's like, it's fun. Um, also, I have to ask you, because I, I, as, an, as an outsider, yeah, what's it like getting getting into the Isafjordur community and the, the backcountry and the outdoor community? Um, so when I first came, I was with a Borea, a guides company. We were staying out in a farmhouse. And when I was staying out there, I thought it was a cool project. So I volunteered my time to help. So I feel, yeah, I just got in with the community. I met the first intros and it's a very small community of outdoor enthusiasts. So they're very responsive for people coming in. Like I am now, like I'm localish now and when anyone comes to ski, I'm very happy to take them out because I think otherwise you're alone. Seems like a very, uh, <laughs> seems like a very uh, 
alive and like closely tight knit community though. Um, like in a good way. I mean, yeah, it's in a good way, and I think the way we are like geographically located, we've kind of our own little island out here. We can be, you know, this winter's been a really tough winter. Like the flights haven't been going, the roads have been closed, so we are like this little, yeah, this little world to ourselves. So, you know, before like if you're in a ski town, you can find the people who you're exactly alike and hang out with them. But here, you know, there's only a few people, so you end up meeting people that you probably wouldn't normally be friends with, and it opens your eyes to lots of different worlds. And we try to encourage each other with different sort of passions and hobbies. So it's pretty cool. So what does the rest of your season look like? Um, well, it seems to be never ending. <laughs> I was skiing in October and like down in Chile, and now I'm like, yeah, it's been a long winter. I'm just hoping it we get some spring days because we haven't really. But I've got friends coming out at the end of May, so it'd be fun to for it to still be good snow then. But I assume, yeah, I think June will still be skiing and stuff too. It depends what happens with the weather, but yeah. days on the aurora arctica was the experience i was looking for skiing will not get much better than this with the floating headquarters packed with skis kayaks and stand-up paddle boards and with siggy at the helm there is simply no better way to experience the mountains and the fjords i'm also very grateful to have discovered the wonderful town of isafjordur where people live their lives not even owning a key to their own house. Where the local ski resort opens up the lift just for you, offering you two hours of non-stop powder skiing. This is a place for anyone brave or wise enough to hop off the daily routines and spend a week or a couple of months in the lovely town of Isafjordur, where skiing, friendship and adventures lies just around the corner. If you listen to this episode using the ACOST podcast app, you will also see some pictures and links along the way. Find out more about this episode and about the Aurora Arctica at huskypodcast.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at the handle Husky Podcast.